Tonight's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. In light of all the sin I've seen, my sisters, some say my soul can't be clean. In spite of all the dirt I've done, my brothers, I have been saved by the sun and I'm redeemed testify oh I am redeemed testify by the blood of the Nazarene I am redeemed testify oh I am redeemed testify by the blood of the Nazarene. You know, it's kind of weird. You, you sit through the whole service and you're like, oh, there's this, and then there's this, and that's, oh my gosh, I really have to do this. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a former teacher of writing. I am not a lecturer, I am not a preacher. I'd be a lot more comfortable if I could like talk for a little bit and then ask you guys to get out some paper and a pen and write for five and then turn to your neighbor, we're gonna pair and share and then we'll share with the whole group and have a class discussion. It's kind of the way it worked. <laughs> but um, that's not what we're doing tonight. Um, first of all, I wanna say a huge thank you to the people who've been doing the live stream um, I've been watching that and it's great and I really appreciate it and it must get kind of old to do it week after week but um, who's ever doing it out there thank you I appreciate it uh, so I might not look familiar to a, some a lot of folks here today uh, my church attendance has always been pretty sketchy um, Neil asked me about that one time <laughs> Why don't you come to church more often? <laughs> um, but I was actually in attendance at the very first House of Mercy service in 1996. Um, and of course, I think everybody knows my husband, Scott, because he's been a much more consistent presence at House of Mercy over the years than I've been. Um, so the reason that I attend even less these days than I used to is because I'm living with a condition called chronic fatigue syndrome, um, or MECFS. Uh, it's similar to long COVID, it's kind of like long COVID, um, but caused by different viruses. People have been um, getting MECFS for a long time before COVID came along. About 70 to 80% of people with MECFS can trace the onset of their condition to a particular infection, like I got mono and I never got better. I'm among the 20 to 30% of MECFS people um, 
who I can't trace my illness to a specific infection. Um, I've begun to suspect that it probably started with an infection a long time ago, although I wasn't diagnosed until 2015 and I had to stop working in 2019. Um, <clears throat> this is all gonna lead to spiritual practice, I promise. <laughs> So ME-CFS is not a very well understood illness, um, even though if I'm understanding the research and what I'm reading correctly, there are mentions in the medical literature of post-viral syndromes going <clears throat> all the way back to the influenza pandemic of the uh, you know, early 1900s. Um, evidently there are documented cases of people getting that influenza and then just not ever really getting better um, and suffering a lot of the same kind of symptoms that ME-CFS people suffer. Um, same with polio in the 40s and 50s. So, but despite this long history, research into the causes of ME-CFS has been really, really scant. Um, in a weird way, all the stuff with long COVID might help out us ME-CFS people because a lot more research is going into um, ME-CFS than has ever, or than long COVID than has ever gone into ME-CFS. So the features of ME-CFS, um, and again, this will be relevant, <clears throat> the conditions that must exist for a diagnosis are one, extreme fatigue, lasting, unrelieved by rest, lasting longer than six months, the kind of fatigue that prevents you from doing your daily activities of living. Second is sleep disturbances or difficulty getting sleep or very unrestful sleep. So I will often wake up in the morning more fatigued than when I went to bed. Um, and the third thing is something called post-exertional malaise, which is a really weird name. What it means is that if someone with ME-CFS exerts themselves, um, something really normal, like doing a little yard work or, or going for, you know, sort of a quick walk or something, they'll end up crashing a day, two, even three days later. So there's this kind of after effect, um, which means that the, the life with ME-CFS can be a lot of, I have great days, I crash. I have great days, I crash. So it's this kind of roller coaster. Um, and then there are all kinds of other symptoms that, that are so varied, as varied as there are people, um, brain fog, sometimes joint pain, low, low thyroid, difficulty regulating body temperature, sensitivity to sound and light, on and on and on. At this time, there's no cure for ME-CFS, um, but, and here's where we start to get to it, it is universally recognized that the one thing that helps is pacing. It is really, really super important for people with ME-CFS to pace their activities and they can manage their condition and actually see improvement. So pacing involves not spending more energy dollars than you know you have. So for example, if a patient is bed bound, and I know people like this, maybe all they attempt in one day is washing their hair. Like that's it, that's their day. Or some people, they might, you know, say have a 50% reduction in their energy with ME-CFS so they can work 10 hours a week. 
but they can't do more because then they'll have that crash. For me, I would say my energy level is at about 30, 35, maybe 40% of what it was before I started having ME-CFS symptoms, um, so I don't work anymore. Um, I kind of spend my energy trying to take care of myself and manage our household. Um, over the, really the past year, I've gotten a lot better at pacing. And one of the things I've noticed is that a really important part of pacing for me is not just how much I do, but how slowly I do it. So I've started to do everything really, really slowly. I walk slowly from my car in the parking lot into the grocery store. <laughs> um, I go for slow walks around the neighborhood for exercise. I fold my laundry slowly. Before I write or read at my laptop, I, I just sort of slowly tidy up my office so my mind doesn't have to think about too many things at once, because brain fog is definitely an issue for me. So when Debbie and Russell announced that they would spend this liturgical year focusing on the idea of spiritual practice, I started to wonder if the slowness I was adopting for my physical health, like, could that also kind of be a spiritual practice? Um, it didn't, it didn't actually seem right to me, because how can you call something a spiritual practice that's actually forced on you? Like, that's cheating, right? Um, but I did kind of start looking at slowness through that lens. Was it possible that I could live slowly, do slowness in a way that enhanced my spiritual health, so to speak, as well as my physical health? Um, This is an ongoing question for me. So like what I'm gonna say now is like just one slide in a long slideshow. Talk to me next week, I'll probably say something entirely different. Um, but here are some discoveries. First off, slow is boring. <laughs> Not what you were expecting me to say, but it is true. Slow is so boring. It's boring to walk slowly into the grocery store. The parking lot at Cub is not that interesting. It's boring to fold laundry slowly. My clothes are not that interesting. I feel like we really are, I mean, I'm noticing more like how trained we are in this society to always go fast. Go fast, go fast, go fast. You know, it's like that's our default setting. I feel like there's a reason we have a somewhat successful film franchise called Speed and not one called Meander. <laughs> Second discovery, slow is disappointing. These days, I can say empty the dishwasher in the time it used to take me to empty the dishwasher, wash some pots and pans, take the trash out. Um, the way my body works, the way my mind works, every day it's just so slow. And I face the disappointment every day of accomplishing so much less than I used to. Um, and third, slow makes you last. 
Not, there's no way around it. That old fable about the tortoise and the hare, not true. There are a lot of very focused hares out there, and they do get there first. And in so many ways, all the time, in my own mind or whatever, I just like, I am always bringing up the rear now in ways that I didn't used to. But it's also true that boring is not necessarily a negative state of mind. We tend to think of that way, think of it that way, and like my kids used to, who I think are watching on the live stream, I'm so bored. <laughs> we hate being bored. But in the hours and hours of boredom I've experienced, another image of that state of boredom has come to me. I just get this picture of a horse, a beautiful horse, walking through a gate into a pasture that is so much larger than what that horse had expected. Living with slowness has also led me to conclude that achievement was never the point. When my kids were young and they wanted a lot of something, a lot of cake and ice cream, a lot of time at the playground, I'd quote Mary Poppins at them, which they hated, enough is as good as a feast. <laughs> yeah, so now it's my turn to accept the truth of that aphorism. Enough is as good as a feast when it comes to achievement. It's okay to just empty the dishwasher. That's good work for a person whose body is not working right. The point, I think, is not achievement, but gratitude. And as far as being last goes, I, had, I sort of had this thought, um, which I did not run by my minister. <laughs> we'll see if you agree that it's sort of like what Jesus said, or it could be sort of like what Jesus said about turning the other cheek and uh, you know, giving your coat in addition to your cloak or whichever way that goes. I feel like being last could be an exercise in humility and generosity, just like the coat and the cloak. Because I think what we're supposed to do when we come in last or toward the last is congratulate the ones who are first. We're supposed to cheer them as they cross the finish line ahead of us, whatever that finish line might be. Or maybe we just speak a prayer of safety and a blessing for the driver who just zoomed past us at twice the speed limit. Um, I recognize that none of my thoughts on slowness are new. There has always been, I think, a counterpoint of slowness in the long story of the rush of American capitalism. Thoreau had his Walden Pond. Anne Morrow Lindbergh had her gifts from the sea. A few decades ago, I was proofreader for the Utney Reader magazine when they published an entire issue entitled In Praise of Idleness. And that counterpoint still exists today. There's, I discovered this movement on social media. I'm not super familiar with it because I'm not really on social media, but it's called slow maxing. 
Um, I guess it was coined by a Twitter user, and it, it a quote somewhere that I read said, it's characterized by taking your time with the little mundane things and seeing how much more you will appreciate life and God's creation. It kind of reminds me of this little decorative sign I have in my office at home. A little more laughter, a little less worry, a little more kindness, a little less hurry. And I do think, I do think slowness is or could be a counterpoint to unbridled capitalism. Um, we speak of a slow economy as if it's a bad thing, but if our economy were fair enough to take care of the needs of all of us, and I recognize that it, it's not currently, but if it were, could a slow economy be better for the planet? Because the thing about being bored and achieving less and getting there last is that those things typically mean consuming fewer goods and driving fewer miles. Like, I don't go out because I can't. I don't have the energy to go out. Well, all right, that's a few less car trips taken every week. <laughs> now, obviously, there are times in our lives when slowness is not called for. Whole stretches of time, maybe years, when people are depending on us, our patients, our students, our parents, our children, our coworkers, our friends, their needs don't always come at a measured pace. Um, we can find ourselves racing to meet a dozen of them all at once. At those times, we want, we need to be able to move swiftly, like a very focused hare, and be super, super grateful for the ability to do so. And I think we also don't want to be slow in working for justice. Um, I saw an interview with Jon Stewart recently, and he, he said something that I've been thinking for a long time. Yeah, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, but it doesn't bend by gravity. We have to work at it. We have to work to make it bend. And I think to love, to help, to feed, to get in good trouble, that sometimes takes speed and quick decisions and just moving. So, okay. So my conclusion at this moment in time is that there are upsides and downsides to living slowly. Um, I think slowness can hinder and slowness can help. What I wonder is if downsides aren't a part of all spiritual practices. And I'm real sketchy on this, so tell me what you think. But is it possible that accepting the downsides is a way for us to actually be more successful at our spiritual practices? Like if we recognize, okay, this isn't always gonna be fun. This isn't always gonna be easy. Meditation is often going to be boring. Yoga might leave me with sore muscles. Committing to church every week might mean I miss the Vikings. But if we know that ahead of time, like if we've grappled with that, would we be better prepared to put up with the discomfort of spiritual practices and stick with them? 
I can tell you that it wasn't until I named the boredom and the disappointment and started grieving what I had lost that I could recognize the upsides. That image of a horse entering this beautiful big pasture, that didn't come to me until I had done a lot of weeping over the life I no longer have. That idea of congratulating others who get there before me or praying for speeding drivers, that didn't come to me until I had grappled with all the ways in which I felt like I was coming in last. What I'm hoping to do going forward is deepen this experience of slowness into something that feels more genuinely like a, a chosen spiritual practice. Like, when I'm bored, read a poem. Maybe even memorize one. When I have to just drop things off my to-do list because I can't do them, say a prayer of gratitude for what I was able to accomplish. When I'm slowly walking into the grocery store, look up and notice the clouds, the sun, the birds. I'm quite sure I would not be up here talking about slowness if I weren't living with MECFS. I wouldn't be doing it. But maybe that's the way of spiritual practices. Maybe we're led to them more than we choose them. We adopt the spiritual practices we really need, not the ones we think we should do. And what I know from 27 years of House of Mercy sermons is that that's where the God of mercy meets us, in our need, in our boredom, in our disappointment, in our coming in last. That's when we find open pasture and gratitude and a feast. When we feel burdened, that's when God grants us rest. <laughs>